Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is the musician, Andrea von Kampen. Not only will we be in conversation, but Andrea will also perform a few of her songs for us live in the studio. Andrea von Kampen is an independent folk singer-songwriter based in Lincoln, Nebraska, whose effortless vocal delivery has been praised by Here Nebraska as soulful and worn in. With the successful release of two EPs, Another Day in 2015 and Desdemona in 2016, and Christmas EP of 2016, and an Audio Tree Live album 2017, Andrea has quickly established herself in the recording studio and on the road. She has shared the stage with artists such as Tall Heights, Ira Wolf, Dead Man Winter, The Brother Brothers, Dead Horses, Darling West, and many more. Old Country, Andrea's debut full-length album, was released in February 2019. The album was recorded and mastered in Nebraska and features exclusively Nebraska-based musicians. Her single, Portland, from the new album, has received notable attention, including Amazon Music Canada featuring it in their Top Songs of 2018 playlist. Andrea first appeared in the public eye with her submission of the song, Let Me Down Easy, into the 2016 NPR Tiny Desk Contest. Within 24 hours of submission, NPR Music All Songs Considered tweeted her video as the featured artist of the day, saying, we were completely blown away. So we'll get ready to get completely blown away now. Uh, Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for the background accompanying music to your bio. Oh, <laughs> thank you. First <laughs> time I've done that. <laughs> So I want to get a sense a little bit more of you as a person. Mm -hmm. So the beginning seems to be the place to start. Yeah. So uh, tell me about your childhood and your upbringing. Totally. Uh, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, I'm the fourth youngest child in my family. So I'm the youngest. I'm the baby. I have three older siblings. Uh, pretty quickly into my life, we moved to Nebraska. My dad's a college professor, so he got a job at Concordia in Seward. And so when we were four, when I was four, we moved there. So yeah, I come from a really musical family. My dad's a composer. My mom plays flute, gave voice lessons. My eldest brother, David's a composer. I think I might have just said my dad's a composer. He's a choir director, but he does compose as well. And then my brother, Paul, is also a choir director. So, and my sister played trumpet, but she's a math teacher, so. It sounds offensively talented, just all around, right? It sounds like you were born no, into this. No, it's it's creepy. <laughs> we we sang a lot as children. I think that I think that all of us didn't realize that our friends' families didn't sing, you know, all the time together. And so you'd go to someone else's house and realize, like, oh wow, <laughs> it's very different at home. I love those experiences as a child when mm -hmm. you go to other people's houses, you go to friends' houses, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, life is different mm -hmm. in other places. Definitely. Definitely. When did you realize that you were part of a musical pedigree? <laughs> Man, that's a great question. Uh, probably when I started to hang out with friends and, and they were mainly listening to pop songs on the radio, and I'd be like, yeah, but that that Ella Fitzgerald record like what about that one and they'd be like what are you talking about <laughs> or or like I spent my Saturdays going to choir concerts and and not playing sports or or hanging out so when I got into probably like fifth and sixth grade I started to realize how wildly different that was 
was it hard not being cool at that particular time? <laughs> Man, you've really, you've really nailed this one. <laughs> you, you know my childhood. Uh, it was just different. I, I don't know. I was never athletic. And when you grow up in like small town, rural America, athletics is everything. And so I think it was mostly frustrating in high school to not, not feel like what I was doing was as valued as being on a sports team. But it also kind of fired me up in a way to, to really want to do this professionally and, and to show people like, no, this is a thing. I was going to save what might be seen as the boring parts later, which is the business of music. Mm-hmm. But this seems like a great segue because you're talking about actually taking this really seriously as a career. And it seems like that arose in your consciousness quite early. Mm-hmm. So tell me about when you did think, oh, this is a career I want to pursue. When, when did that happen and, and how did you recognize it? Totally. Well, I knew that I wanted to play music and everyone in my family had taken the trajectory of becoming a music teacher. But I knew that being a music teacher full time meant not being able to tour, not really being able to to do music full time. And so I would talk to my parents and they'd say, like, yeah, that's a great idea. But how are you ever going to get there? You know, you're going to have to pay bills. You're going to have to do the boring stuff if you want to do this. And so um, for me, I I did teach part time my first year out of college, and I kept that job for two years while trying to build up the touring. And so I, I had convinced my employer to let me work Tuesday through Thursday so I could tour Friday through Monday, which is a beautiful <laughs> schedule. And I just said to myself, I cannot quit until I get so busy that A, I don't need this income, and B, I don't have time to do this anymore. And essentially, that's what happened last year in May. I just knew this is the time to make that leap. And I've been having a foot in both worlds for two years now, and I just can't keep going on at this rate. It feels like a really mature approach to making this work. And I sense that modern life is inundated with this message to follow your passion and find the intersection of of what people will pay for and as long as you're, you're calling. And I think that's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. So continuing with this idea about making this a, a career, what are the ways, the approaches you're taking to the, the business of, of making this a career? Yeah, definitely. Well, one thing that was vital in knowing I could do this full time was the digital world. And so I had had my first taste of success with digital streaming my senior year of college. One of my songs had gotten into a pretty big playlist. And so quickly we started to see streams going up, but it was not enough to live on. Um, And so then it was sort of like, well, how do we get this to a point where there's actually some consistency with it? And um, slowly and surely it did start to grow and grow and grow to a point where it kind of did become a stabilizer and knowing that I could do this full time. Um, And it wasn't everything. But with that growing, we knew that the shows would grow. We knew that we'd actually be able to get into venues and kind of it would all work together to make this a full time thing. What's this blend of um, touring, streaming, mm-hmm. house shows, selling merchandise? How are all these and other things that I'm not aware of coming together to form this sort of 21st century model of being right. a the DIY musician? artist? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. It's it's grown so slowly, and not so slowly, but it feels really slowly when you're living it. It's all it's all grown together and kind of worked at the same time. And like I had gotten some merch items a long time ago, and I just 
was not proud of them at all. It was sort of just like, a, let's quick get something we can just throw on a table at shows. And I would never take pride in selling it. I wasn't very invested in it. And then the second time we went and designed t-shirts, I picked a local printmaker who I knew was great. And we worked on a design and we got shirts that like felt really good and looked really good. And like that kind of just changed my whole perspective on merch. Like I, I want to sell things that kind of tell the story that are a part of the brand and you know obviously I don't like to think of making records as a brand but when you take it on the road it kind of all has to look the same and feel the same and so um yeah and like the stickers I use I have my dog on them and they say save a teddy and it's just another way that sort of like fans can connect to these things that are you know additions to the show and so that's been a big part of like kind of being a DIY artist is Every single show, I stand by my merch table and I talk to every single person that comes up. And it can get, you know, after, night after night after night, you're sort of like, man, this is hard work. But then you're like, no, it's not. Like, stop being a baby. Like, these people came here to see you. And they're awesome people. And being able to connect right now at this level with all 50, 60, 70 people is a really special thing that I, I don't ever want to take that for granted. It's such a cool thing. I think it's worth pointing out to anyone listening that your Prairie community t-shirts are all sold out. Mm-hmm, yep. No more boats. No more boats in the prairie. But we have a new design coming up right now. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking before we came on air just a little bit about touring and house shows as part of the mm-hmm. business of being this DIY artist. Definitely. So how does that form part of this mix? And, and what do those performing opportunities feel like and, and look like for you? Yeah. So house shows have been so cool because... Um, there's a lot of amazing people right now who are saying, you know, we see that for the indie artist, venue breakdown doesn't always work. Venues can take a lot, you know, and when you're new and you don't know how many tickets you're going to sell, it's kind of a gamble. And you can spend a lot of nights only making, you know, 50 bucks and you can't you can't tour on that. And there's been some incredible people who are just music lovers who have said, you know, we're going to invite our 50 friends and we're not going to take a cut, and we're going to sit here, and we're going to listen to these artists. And that, for a folk singer, is amazing. To know people are coming to listen means the world. So, yeah, I've been really lucky to get connected with a lot of these house show people all across the country, and these people, most of the time, are amazing. (laughs) Uh, We... We um, Can we have the name and address? Where did it go wrong? Let me tell you the one that was not amazing. No, um... But for our last, for my last tour this last summer, I did put out a, like a little thing that said, here are the days I don't have shows. Here's where I'm going to be. If you want to do a house show, contact me. So a little risky because essentially you just have strangers who you have no idea who they are saying, yeah, come to my house. But it, it worked out really well. I feel like we've kept people waiting long enough to hear you play yeah, something. Yeah, totally. Would it be okay for me Let's to ask you to play something? Let's Great. do it. Let's do it. Yeah, so this song is on my new record, and it is called Portland. It's kind of about a journey that I took, but it's about a few other things as well. This place looks nothing like where I come from 
The trees they turn later, the sky comes undone. We drove all night through Coeur Lane, and I woke up with the sun. Onwards to Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. I just wanna leave. To say that I did Nothing against all the green fields Of my childhood But I'm driving through all the same places That I used to I'm gonna Portland, Oregon mm-hmm. If I am lost, I'm lost on purpose Please God don't find me If I am running, I'm running away All on my own I get lost, I get lost, I get lost cares if the foundation's cracked as long as it looks good when somebody asks yet I've got a man who loves me despite what I like we're gonna Portland Oregon if anyone God don't find me If I am running I'm running away All on my own I get lost I get lost I get lost Hmm So your inspiration for a lot of your songs seems to come from art, literature, nature. And I know, for example, there's a story that informs old country, for example. Yes, right. So would you talk a little bit more about these uh, the, these different types of media and where you draw this inspiration from? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've always loved to read. Just, I just love stories. I don't know. I feel like if I didn't do this, I'd be telling stories in some other way. And maybe I will someday still. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I just love 
love that and I can't experience everything. And so for me, being able to take a lot of experiences from characters and books and, and kind of being able to think about that for a while and then say, okay, I kind of want to write a song that has to do with this or I, I feel like this relationship is important or this character's story is important and then telling that. Um, and for me, it's sort, of, it's sort of like a great songwriting exercise, but then you can kind of elaborate on it and, and make it more personal to you as well. I had a songwriting lesson a couple years ago with an amazing songwriter named Gabriel Kahane, and he had said to me, you know, really push the boundaries of where you get your inspiration from. Cross-pollinate. Don't just listen to a record and say, I love that record. I want to write songs just like that person. You know, like, look at a painting and say, what would I, how would I write a song about this painting? Or read a book. And that was a good push, and it really made me think about, you know, where inspiration can come from and, and how to keep it interesting and new. So correct me if I'm wrong then, mm-hmm. but um, Dink's song? Mm-hmm. And I've forgotten the title of it, but um, Dink Song and uh, another Dylan song, I'll... Oh, If You See Her Say Hello. Thank you for helping Mm me. Am I wrong in thinking that you took those lyrics and they're 75% the same, but you've changed some of them? (laughs) Um, That's interesting. So, okay, so Dink Song is a traditional folk song that's in public domain. And those lyrics I kept pretty similar to. There's like an old book of the woman Dink and she sang these, you know, three verse, four verses into a recorder and they just transcribed those four verses. And so uh, I'm pretty much singing exactly what she did. With the Dylan song, what's kind of interesting about that is every time you hear a recording of that song sung by Dylan, there are different lyrics. <laughs> and so there's, I don't know, you just have to pick some and go for it if you're going to cover a song that essentially changes every time he plays it. Um, but the big thing with the Dylan was is that I... I really completely rewrote the chordal structure and the melody on that. So it ends up sounding like a very different song, (laughs) but it is all Dylan's words and some of his melodies. (laughs) Tell us a little bit more then about maybe some specific examples of where your songwriting has been informed by a particular piece of uh, cultural artifact. Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Um, Let me think about that. Well, hmm. That's a really great question. So tomorrow, the first song on my record, um, cultural artifact, not quite like I looked at a painting or I saw like a physical thing, but part of that has to do with um, Shakespeare's uh, Lady Macbeth's soliloquy, like out damn spot. And she's like rubbing her hands furiously and she can't get it out. And that, that kind of has to do with just like cultural guilt you know like what have we done wrong and and this idea that you know how long till the river runs blue and and will it ever how far gone are we and just the way that like in the daytime Lady Macbeth feels comfortable doing these things but yet you see at night this is deeply troubling her and it's sort of like a a commentary on you know in the daytime what are things that we're comfortable with that we cannot fully even sleep with at night a really dark, heavy song to open a record with, but um, but yeah, that's kind of where that came from. But your songs don't necessarily come across as dark and heavy right. in the way that you mm-hmm. have structured mm-hmm. them and delivered. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, I think that the strings on that kind of elevate it, and it's sort of funny because I've heard a lot of people say like that's such a creepy song, <laughs> which is funny to me because I never intended that, but it's just honestly what came out. I I can't explain why the music 
ended up sounding that way, but it, that's just how I wrote it. So I do, in due course, want to ask you about the instrumentation and, yeah. and how you make those choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I get there, though, I, I want to just say that it seems that your songs and lyrics are so excruciatingly observant of of the human condition, mm-hmm. the highs and lows. Mm-hmm. And it can be really painful and enlivening at the same time to, to listen. And you said earlier that you can't encounter everything, and so you use this wide cross-pollinating cultural set of resources that are available to us in the world. But then I'm still haunted and enlivened by songs like Desdemona and Julia, uh, Let Me Down Easy. These songs really stick with you. They put their barbs in. So how is it that somehow, notwithstanding you aren't originating these necessarily in your own lived experience, you can still conjure this so acutely observant sense of emotion in your songs? Well, thank you. That was a really nice question. Um, probably being the fourth child. <laughs> you 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 have to be freakishly observant because no one's listening to what you say ever. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not going to get a soapbox about that right now. But um, I don't know. I've always been freakishly observant about people and emotions. And when I watch things, it's it's just always about, well, why does that character feel that way? And my family is a huge talking family. Like, uh, I have friends comment on, it's really creepy how much your family talks. Like, all dinner, we just talk. And and so I think I was raised to be observant. And then also just the fourth child thing. Just you have so many people that you're creepily observing all the time. And I think that kind of made me be a very communicative little kid. So I want to ask you in a second then about the craft of, of mm-hmm. songwriting. Totally. We'll come to that in a minute. Okay. But is now a good time to stop and for me to shut up and maybe sure. hear you? That sounds great. So this one is Julia. Julia lays in the sunshine and waits Out by the water in the bay And the sun goes down and the sun goes down Where is her lover? The day is breaking over the water Julia moves to the city too Find a new kind of memory, fix her mind And the sun goes down, and the sun goes down She won't find another Julia is hung up on her lover So lonely and I 
that time, time heals the stain. Julia's in the city, it's spring, spring in the city, blooming trees. And she walks alone and she laughs alone. The lady is lovely, Julia won't wait for anybody. I like that song. It's just so effervescent. And, oh, um, do you know a Julia? I know many Julias, which is kind of funny because that's kind of the whole point of the song, you know. Um, it's not meant for one specific person, but what's been really cool is on the road, I've had a lot of girls come to me like, oh my gosh, this is my best friend. You have written a song about my best friend. Um, and it's kind of funny because, I don't know, I tried to keep it open enough to feel relatable. Um, so it's kind of funny when people think I've written a song completely for one person, but I think that's awesome. Is this something that happens for you a lot, that people that hear your music respond to it in that way? They, they feel as if it is calling directly to them or to some experience they have in their lives. Yeah, I've definitely had people, I've gotten a lot of emails and Instagram messages about uh, relating to certain songs, and, and it's super cool. I. I'm really humbled when people care that much to listen to the lyrics and then write me about it. So, Does that, though, make writing music also incredibly hard? Because in some way, you now are writing songs that you know speak to people's lives. And I wonder if that carries any sense of responsibility. Yeah, maybe a little bit. I think that the writing process is always hard because trying to write a good song that means something in general it's just not easy and so I'm not really when I write I don't really think like oh this group of people this isn't going to be enough for them it's more just like this isn't enough <laughs> this isn't good enough yet um by the time I feel good about it I'm I'm confident to send it out in the world so tell me more then about the genesis and conclusion of the songwriting process for mm -hmm. you definitely so I think I'm always still trying to figure out how to be a better songwriter, how to be better at songwriting. But for me, it's just putting in the time and showing up every day. Um, it's not, it's just not as magical and as fun as it looks when it's portrayed. Like it's really just work um, as much as I don't want it to be. There's been some songs where I've really just sat down and written them. But if I hadn't have showed up and sat down, I wouldn't have written them. And so all the other days, where you know you're just laboring over a song it makes the days where it's quick and easy you know fun and like huh well that was a good day but it's just it's never like that every time and so i have to i have i've had to you know convince myself to show up like a job to it because you know i just can't wait to be inspired every day it's just i just will not get enough work done so um so that's kind of the method i've taken just showing up every day and so you show up every day and this work happens mm -hmm. and how then does the song sort of unfold from there? Yeah. So, so yeah, I write songs. I try to write almost every day. If there's a busy period, if I'm touring, obviously I'll have to take a couple weeks off. But um, yeah, so I'll write something. If I like it, I'll keep coming back to it, keep editing it, keep working on it. When I feel like I've had, when I feel like I've arrived at a good 
lyric and melody and chordal structure and I feel really good about it. Sometimes I might play it live and see the reactions. Other times if I don't have shows coming up, I send it to my brother David and he might say like, you know, I really like this, but let's look at this chord. Like this doesn't make sense. My brother David understands music theory way more than I do. And so he understands like when choices are confusing (laughs) or I'm just like, I don't know, it sounds good. It's like, no, this is wrong because of this reason. So he's kind of like an amazing editor for my work. Um, But most of the time I'll send him a demo and say, this is the arrangement I'm looking for. So like with tomorrow, I knew I wanted the strings to come in on the first chorus and then I knew it wanted to be a bigger effect on the second chorus. And so then he said, okay, great. And he wrote out the string parts. So he arranges all of the extra instruments that you hear. So how do you go about making those choices about instrumentation? Because it seems that your music is, it, it's so easy on the soul. It's very human, it's very natural, but it's also very complicated and, and extremely emotionally evocative. And yet it's not laden with artifice, by which I mean sort of technological artifice. It seems like there's no amplifiers and synth- mm-hmm. synthesizers and this sort of thing. But there's plenty of lush music. Or sometimes it's stripped down to your voice and uh, an acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. So how, how are you making those choices? Yeah, well, with some of the songs, I kind of know what I want it to feel like. Like with Teton, I knew I wanted this traveler feeling, this, this kind of like pulsating rhythm through the song. But um, a lot of the times... I have to trust my brother and he takes such an amazing minimalistic approach and it's all about what's going to serve the song without getting in the way of the song and I've played some with bands and live shows and you can kind of start to feel when players maybe don't get the song they want to just do what might sound good but it's not about what might sound good it's about what's going to serve the song the best and that's where I trust David a hundred percent because he just really gets it and I also think that he appreciates the song in its truest form of just guitar and vocal and I think there's a lot of people that sort of approach um, producing as being like a kid in a candy store how much stuff can we throw on this track to make it exciting and fun and that's just not an approach I'll ever want to take with my songs. Um, they they need to be, they need to be. Um, I think minimalistic is really important, and, and what's going to make the the meaning of the song the most impactful. And sometimes it's less, you know. And like a lot of times, sometimes no sound, you know. Sometimes those pauses or those beats in a show or the the silent part of films are sometimes the most powerful parts. And so I just don't want to over overdo anything. So I, I came of age in, in the 80s in England, and I heard someone describe it as a an absurd confection of a decade. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this kind of really over-the-top technicolor of, you, you know, exuberance. And yet I feel as if this decade that we're in now is one where this idea of stripping things back to something that feels mm-hmm. real yeah. and but something that is honest and reflective of the world that we live in now. And do you feel as if that's infusing your music or do you think in some way that you yourself are helping to create this 
global vibe? <laughs> oh gosh, that's a that's a weighty <laughs> question. Yes, I'm influencing the global vibe. No, um, yeah, that's a great question, and I I do feel like a lot of my generation is taking it back to the, you know, like there's so many people on Etsy, you know, making stuff and like handmade clothing and like gardening and all that stuff is so huge and. And maybe part of that does influence the stripped back version, but it's kind of funny because so many of the people that I grew up listening to, I feel like also it was really about the craft of the songwriting, like a Paul Simon, huge influence for me. And like, while a lot of his albums do have a lot of production, I don't feel like it ever gets in the way. Um, And James Taylor and Bob Dylan, you know, these are people who were really, when they were doing the folk songwriting, seriously stripped it back and I don't know that's such a great question I don't really know if I have a great answer for it (laughs) but but maybe maybe I've been influenced by that so the final chapter as it were of the show I think I want to talk about Mm -hmm. you a little bit more okay but I don't think we can get there without hearing something cool that's all right let's do it (laughs) (laughs) so this one is the title track This is called Old Country. Wish you could have stuck around this year. Spring came sooner than we thought. If you'd seen all those leaves turn green You might not have felt so lost Old country Why'd you let him leave? Old country Except a mama laying flat in the days, praying and pleading for you. Old country, why do you let him Old country.
Thanks, guys. Just out of curiosity, why why is that song the title track? Yeah, um, it's kind of funny because I knew that when I titled this record Old Country, everyone would think I was a country artist, the people who hadn't heard of me before, so most of the people. Um, and I knew I was like taking kind of a risk with that, but I just, I loved, I just loved the way it looked in print. I liked the way it sounded and, and also kind of funny because old country music is a lot like folk music. It's not produced. It's, it is raw and it's, it's a great thing. So, um, and, and while that's not what the title is referencing, the title is referencing the old country where Antonia's family comes from. Um, I just thought, uh, whatever. I like the way it looks and it'll be kind of, if anything, interesting for people to wonder if I am a country artist. <laughs> Uh, at least an old one. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you describe yourself as a person? Um, well, <laughs> that's interesting. In a professional setting, folk singer-songwriter. Um, in general, though, I mean, I'm, a, I'm somebody who is very talkative. I love communicating with people. Um, I, sometimes I think I'm painfully empathetic where I just totally feel people's pain in a way where it can be it can be bad <laughs> for my psyche um but yeah I mean that's probably a good way to describe it really chatty um moody <laughs> what else do you want to know <laughs> what else do you want to tell me <laughs> gosh I don't know I'm a, I'm a hypochondriac <laughs> but I've always been I go to my doctor like twice a month for no reason so, yeah, that's what I'll tell you. <laughs> so you're still early in a career and you're still early in your life. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting when I ask the question, you naturally being a DIY artist, building your own business, that, that you would define yourself professionally, but also then talked about who you are in terms of your personality. But do you ever get worried that maybe those two things shouldn't cross? And, yeah. And, okay. All the time. <laughs> um, well, for me, what's interesting is so my husband does a lot of the business stuff for me. And and it's funny because kind of navigating that as well, you know, because we could talk business all day, you know, and, and with with our digital devices now. I mean, I can wake up at 6 a.m. and start answering emails and I can work until midnight and I can have no work life balance at all. Because what's sort of interesting is when you do what you love, it's sort of like it's it's all your life and it's hard to define the boundaries. And and when you are, you know, just starting and you're doing it yourself and you're young, the temptation is to seriously just never stop doing it and to just keep talking about it and take every opportunity. And and the thing is is it's mostly good, but it, it can get it can get exhausting and, and it can be where you're like with your family and then all of a sudden you're like you know, oh, but I have to check my email. It's like, no, you don't. <laughs> I'm like, stop. And I think what's been really good for me is trying to keep to a pretty regular schedule of reading and n not answering emails every minute, every day and, and doing things that kind of slow, slow down time because it's so much more interesting for me. Like it's so much more stimulating to just like watch a bunch of TV, but yet books are I feel it so much more in a visceral way and it just slows down time because it's not as stimulating to read books. <laughs> like, at least not at first, right? Like it's more work to read a book than it is to just listen to a podcast. Or So I try to journal and read books and do things that, you know, essentially slow down time. And I think that that helps. 
so I have a sort of yin and a yang, a two-part mm-hmm. question sort of as we move towards the close. So the first part is usually I would talk with people like yourself in terms of what does success look like and what are the larger aspirations. But I guess I want to ask, is there a ceiling that you don't want to exceed? Is there a sense of caution about being too famous? Because it seems to me that you could be as big and as famous as you wanted to be because you are so talented. Do you want to put a cap on that? (laughs) That's interesting. I always joke, like, how famous can a folk singer get? You know, like, (laughs) I think this guy, I think there is a limit to a folk singer's success. I was going to say, ask ask Bob Dylan. Yeah, right, exactly. There's the icons that are are definitely not the same. But um, I don't know. I mean, I want to be able to do what I love, and I want to be able to make a living. And... I think any sort of fame that gets in the way of like living your life in a normal way is is not something to aspire to or wish for. It's just super annoying. And so I I totally envy the artists that, you know, are killing it online and doing an amazing job and making, you know, enough to live on, more than enough to live on. People love their records, but yet they can still pretty much walk down any street and have very few people know them. That's what I want. <laughs> like, I want to be doing this at a professional level and playing big shows, but essentially having, you know, having still a lot of autonomy. I think that fame is mostly a really bad thing. (laughs) I think it's super destructive and, and, and really inhibits you to be able to be free. So my last question then is what makes you happy? Hmm. A lot of things. Um, I love, I think one of the things that makes me the happiest is just walking in nature with my dog. I just love my dog so much. And I, I've always loved taking walks. Like I was the 12 year old that was like walking. People are like, that's what my grandmother does. What are you doing? Um, uh, that makes me really happy. Uh, family, obviously. Um, yeah, a good book. It's funny because it really is like the simple things that I think bring the most happiness would you mind playing us out not at all not at all so this is a um a folk tune that's in public domain made popular by the carter family uh it's called wildwood flower oh i'll twine with mommy golden raven black hair with the road so red and the lily so fair and the myrtle bright with the emerald dew and the pale and the leader and eyes look like blue Oh, she taught me to love her and promise to love And to cherish me over all others above Oh, I long to see her and regret the dark hour She's gone and neglected her pale wildwood flower
Oh, she taught me to love her and called me her flower that was blooming to cheer her through life's dreary hour. Oh, I long to see her and regret the dark hour. She has gone and neglected her pale wildwood flower. Thank you. I've been in conversation with folk singer-songwriter and listening to folk singer-songwriter Andrea von Kampen. Andrea, wow. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>